Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Michael Retche. Michael has had a varied career in the alternative data space, with a background in artificial intelligence academia and advertising technology, before moving into the hedge fund space with Point72. Michael has now created data science teams for a hedge fund, a sovereign wealth fund, and a traditional asset manager, giving him a unique insight into the challenges involved as well as a multi-perspective view of the alternative data scene. I began by asking Michael to talk me through his background a little. Uh, yeah, super. Um, so, um, I mean, alternative data uh, in investing um, was actually preceded by alternative data in you know, lots of internet uh, products. Uh, and so, for example, all of internet advertising was an early mover in applying uh, large-scale cloud computing, um, uh, messy, unstructured data, and um, uh, machine learning in order to actually uh, target advertising. So before I went into finance, I was actually running engineering at a uh, ad tech company that was started with my students uh, called uh, Quantcast. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and we were building lots of machine learning models to actually improve the accuracy of advertising. You came from academia originally, didn't you? Yeah, so I can't. Well, so I actually my first job out of college was, was actually Intel. Um, so, uh, but after uh, uh, some years at Intel, I was a product engineering manager for memory products. So forecasting yield was a data science job before data science existed. Um, uh, and then I went in, I did a PhD in neuroscience to learn something about the brain so that I could uh, work on reverse engineering it. So I was an academic for a number of years. But that was that was the same. Um... Demis Hassabis, who's the CEO of um, DeepMind, he did the same thing. He went and he was a coder and he and then he um, went back and studied neuroscience in the same way at the kind of at the, at the turn of the century, I want to say. Yeah, he also did it at the same university. Really? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, University College London. So, um, Did you know him? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I, I've met him a couple of times, yeah. Um, uh, and I've also had some of my staff have gone to, uh, to DeepMind, so... Um, but uh, yeah, uh, but why, why, why was UCL the place to do that back then? Was there a particularly good professor or, or, or kind of department? Well, I think the, um, uh, so UCL is, um, I mean, one of the top universities in the UK and, um, I guess seen as a little bit less conservative in its approach to things than Oxford, Cambridge, and a couple of the other big uh, universities uh, in terms of, uh, um, you know, research caliber. Um, and so, uh, so UCL, so I was, uh, um, one of the first faculty members sort of across departmental lines. I was a faculty member both in the neuroscience department uh, and in the computer science department. And at that stage, you know, the, the classes didn't even have the same time schedule. I mean, all students who were in one department essentially took all their courses in, the, in that department. So <laughs> the class the last time didn't even line up across departments. Um, but, 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 you know, but UCL was an early, early mover in sort of uh, seeing the benefit of interdisciplinary work. Seeing the read across. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, great. So you went back to kind of learn about AI and kind of take that forward from a, from a kind of neuroscience perspective as well. Um, you were saying. Yeah, and so, um, but I missed the impact. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's, I, I sort of see the sequence as, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So first you have to, out of good out of college, you have to prove you can earn a living. Uh, and I ended up at a really high, high impact job at, at Intel. New idea, million copies go out the next month. Um, but I wanted to go and, uh, you know, think about 
you know, big things and important things. And so I went to become a professor, but I miss the other side of that impact, which is, um, you know, uh, lots of university work, it's essentially ignored. Um, so, so that's why I went and started companies with my students in order to, uh, uh, have this combination of really interesting open problems at the same time, uh, high impact. So just quickly on that, before we move away from it, um, do you think, do you believe, uh, cause it, it was a kind of a fashion, um, which has, which has created a lot of, a lot of potential movement in the AI space, but the idea of reverse engineering the human brain, um, do, and, and it created a lot of, a lot of, um, talk, uh, Hyper, hyperbolic talk about uh, the fact that soon AI will, you know, get beyond the human brain and, and will be, and, you know, and, and then what will ensue. But do you think the human brain is, is a good model for this? Or do you think the, um, we should be developing the kind of AI and the, and the machine learning and the, and the computer engineering almost along separate paths because it, it will never be like the human brain? Yeah, um, I guess the short answer is that uh, the human brain is super important because it actually does it already. Uh, I also I see this as this uh, this conflict in terms of how to spend time between um, analysis and synthesis. Um, so some people like taking things apart to see how they work, um, and that's how they fix them. And some people like just making a new one. Um, and so there's a science bias towards analysis, and there's an engineering bias towards synthesis. Um, but, uh, in the case of intelligence, um, you know, we don't know how it works. And the interesting thing is that, um, the more we learn about the brain and the more we try to build, uh, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence systems, the more similarity we see. And I, you know, I think this is, it's very similar to the relationship between physics and math. Um, um, it, as people, uh, do, uh, physics, they discover that things that have been done in math actually proved to be extremely uh, valuable because essentially there are what seems at first an infinite number of ways to go, mm. but uh, a, a rather more constrained set of, of true answers to the problems. There's one best way, and that's the way yeah. which nature has tended to have chosen. Um, that's and right. So we're yeah. discovering nature's path in a way with our, with our theory. That's right. So if you look at some of the, uh, you know, like the image analysis, um, uh, uh, deep learning uh, models uh, uh, that uh, um, that sort of uh, had been advancing at rapid uh, pace over uh, uh, recent years. You know, the underlying um, uh, nodes in those networks um, look a lot and behave a lot like uh, different types of cells in the in the visual processing system in the brain that we understand. So, so you know, just more evidence shows up that. Um, there aren't a uh, there aren't an enormous numbers of ways to solve the problem, um, and uh, you know it, it would sort of uh, behoove us to not ignore the only solution that we have in front of us in our attempt to try to solve an open problem. Interesting, interesting, jolly good. Okay, so um, you came from that and you moved into the kind of um, you were saying that the kind of ad tech with some of your students, um, and you were doing at Quantcast. You were you were um, using machine learning techniques in advertising technology um and and related practices and then you're about to you're about to explode on the financial finance scene i suspect yeah and so the idea is that um if you know what ad to show someone then you know what product they're interested in if you know that across all products and services then you know who's which company is winning in the marketplace and so it's exactly the same analysis on the exactly the same data uh, which can tell you uh, about successful stocks so um, and, and so uh, that's really um, 
In fact, the first company that we started, um, uh, which was finding uh, fraud and money laundering um, in businesses, which we sold to Wahlberg Pinkus in 2005, um, was also uh, doing a similar uh, type of analysis. And so there's a pattern to this analysis. And let me, I can spend a second and explain it very easily. So is it about finding anomalies? It's, a, it's about finding anomalies, but as much as it's about finding changes in, in behavior. So if you think about recommender systems like that Amazon uses or that um, Netflix uses to recommend movies to you, um, essentially this you get clustered into uh, peers who actually seem to who like the same movies or the same products mm. um, by the nature of your prior transactions. And so if um, your credit card is stolen, it's likely the person who's, who steals it uh, doesn't purchase things in the same pattern that you purchase things. So analyzing, um, uh, you know, what type of uh, behavior you have, and sometimes we have a label and sometimes we don't um, for that cluster um, will help us understand um, if the card is stolen. And similarly in advertising, we want to show you things that we think you're interested in because of the nature of uh, how similar you are to others who buy it. Um, and, uh, and the same thing is true in, in business, because um, if we break into a new cohort or a new type of uh, customer at some business, then it actually is a precursor to rapid growth. I see it. I see it. But so so just to hammer it home in stock and then how, how, how does that read across into, into stocks properly? Yeah. So uh, so the way I look at it is this. Um, so what uh, people try to do with with data is to uh, forecast um Either you know, either now cast or forecast what the health of a business is, and so now casting is obviously easier. Um, the data uh, you want to know the data prior to the time the CEO tells you, let's say for earnings surprise. But if you're investing in a company because of its future growth, you want to forecast it. And so, so one thing you could do is you could add up all of the revenue that you're aware of, you know, by lots of different means. But more importantly, not all of this revenue is created equally. So if a company grows by 5%, there are at least four ways of thinking about that growth, which are very different. Uh, one is it could grow by 5% by getting 5% more customers. Well, that's that's great because you're getting one increment of a lifetime value of that customer over time. And so you expect them to stay and continue, continue to pay you. Um, uh, if, the, if it's more loyalty spent from the same customers, then basically you're using up your lifetime value. So it's a saturation function. It can't go on forever. If you raise your prices and lost some customers, well, you get paid once. And so your future forecast is that it's not going to go up anymore. Um, but the best type of scenario is that if you break into a completely new type of customer, like Lululemon starting to sell to men, then you, then you expect a period of rapid growth until you occupy, occupy a reasonable percentage of the customers who um, are in that cohort. Um, and so what... Um, what investors want to know is, you know, how is a company growing? Uh, what is the nature of its growth? So that um, uh, so that it's better to sort of understand its future, uh, uh, the future uh, um, uh, growth of that company and to and therefore to determine its value, because essentially the value of a company is, I mean, again, the simplest analogy is uh, buying a rental property or buying a property that you expect to go up in value. You buy a property and you pay many times uh the annual rent um, that you expect to get from the property um, because uh, because it's going to produce uh, rent for some period of time. And or if you if, even if you ignore the rent, but you think it's going to go up in value, you have some forecast of its growth in value and you're paying some amount of money because you anticipate uh, that uh, you're going to get a return when it grows in value. And there's math that's used in terms of how much you should spend to buy a house in either of those scenarios. And it's exactly the same math um, with slightly different 
key performance indicators when you're when you're thinking about the value of a stock. So how much this uh, company is going to go up in value is super important in, in attributing sort of a stock price. For sure. Interesting. Interesting. Great. So you were there um, working at Quantcast um, and uh, 0.72 at that point, we're, we're talking uh, July, August 2014, which is a time when alternative data is um, is underway. It hadn't it hadn't become mainstream yet. In some ways, um, you can kind of uh, you can point towards a, a Wall Street Journal article in 2015 for, for its kind of, you know, um, uh, its its debut, um, but it had been around for for a fair amount of time. And point seventy two, we're looking for a a data scientist who could who could um, introduce the concept, or were, were they already familiar with with alternative data at the time? So um, uh, so point seventy two um, was obviously an early mover in the space, and they had a small team of uh, um, a couple of individuals um, who were uh, and a little bit of uh, of um, uh, build up of infrastructure in the sort of cloud, but really it was um, sort of a pilot project that had gone on for a little bit of time um, prior to my arrival. And um, what they were looking for is someone to uh, scale it up. And so the the idea was to uh, build a team of 20 to 30 people um, relatively quickly, build a lot of different data sets um, and, uh, and integrate with all of the uh, teams in order to provide them insights uh, for their event-based trading practices. Why, why that moment? Do you know what the trigger was? Well, I believe that um, there had been some early success. Um, and um, um, so it was clear that uh, there was information uh, in the data, which would actually help predict the, uh, uh, you know, what the top line revenue that the CEO would, talk, would tell you about. And uh, again, these guys, um, uh, it's a fairly narrow range. I mean, it's 51% right at forecasting earnings surprise, they survive. If they're 55% right at forecasting earnings surprise, they have a very good year. It's because it's large numbers of transactions that they're, that they're constantly doing. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's at bats, as they would say. Yeah, so 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 they make money because they, even though they they lose sometimes, um, uh, they they win enough times. Um, and, and then there's, there's also, that's you know, referred to with baseball analogy referred to sort of as a batting average. There's also a slugging ratio, which is that when you're right, how much, how well do you do? And when you're wrong, you know, how do you minimize the loss? So, mm. um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically the process. And so um, these data sets, um, uh, even in the early sort of uh, looks, uh, we're providing um, uh, measurable quantitative advantage. So, Interesting. Uh, so uh, there was a decision to sort of uh, invest in it. Yeah. So what kind of data sets were we talking about back then? No, I mean, I think the uh, the types of data sets back then and, and now are still largely uh, the same. Um, so, um, I mean, the data sets which are most valuable are things like uh, um, uh, credit card transactions. Um, you know, uh, we, were, we were discussing a little bit earlier, um, you know, weather predicts uh, consumer behavior. I mean, in both directions, the sunny weather predicts um Shopping and uh, bad weather predicts spend it uh, at uh, in you know home repairs and various other types of things. Um, um, and um, uh, credit card uh, and cell phone locations will tell you if people are out and about and which shops they're at. Um, and credit card transactions will tell you how much they spend. What did it feel then, perhaps compared to now? Did it feel like there was much less competition? And did that come through in terms of finding alpha? Is it harder to find alpha now because more people are crawling all over these data sets? 
Well, again, I think the uh, the first area um, for leveraging certainly credit card data is um, uh, restaurants and apparel. Um, and uh, but I think uh, people have found ways of looking at lots of other sectors with the data. Um, and uh, you know, the thing is, there are lots of different trading strategies. The other thing I will say is that um, I mean, the um, uh, the data isn't uh, you know it's only a small part of the trading process. Um, so. At some periods of time, like in the um, end of 2014, you know, there was OPEC um, sort of uh, uh, opened up um, all restrictions on oil production in oil producing members. Um, and, uh, and so you end up with market events um, where the primary thing moving the market is uh, some, you know, some news or some macro uh, characteristic. And so it's, it's less of an opportunity for trading on, you know, knowledge of the individual value of companies. And so people, when they look at markets, there's sort of a, there's a principal components or primary factors way of thinking about the markets. And the first one is beta, which is just the fluctuation of the market itself. The second one is the sector, um, because depending upon news, some sectors go up, some sectors go down. And the third one is individual stocks. And so you, you sort of have to be in a regime of the market where, um, the value of individual stocks matters in order to be able to leverage this type of data. So, um, and there's enough uh, regime change in the nature of the market to, um, uh, you know, so that it's hard to sit there and say with some, you know, sort of linear extrapolation process and say, oh, well, more competitors now. And so it's the data is less useful. Um, but, but certainly there are indications in the market there, that there are more people trading with the types of data as time's gone by. Where do you see, um, so this was, you were saying um, back then, um, and, and this is a common thread, that consumer and retail was, was, was where the sector has come from, and perhaps industrials and, um, you know, manufacturing and, and these things are, have been less plumbed in terms of um, finding, the, finding the data, less mined um, from an alternative data perspective. Where do you see that, that development happening? Um, and, and where, where, where do you see that, that line of development? Is it, where, where are we at and where's, where's coming? Do you think? Well, I mean, so I think, um, uh, again, I, we're talking, uh, so far about, um, use of data for predicting events. Um, there are at least three different time domains for using data uh, in the market. There's a short time domain, which is I build an AI that can read uh, analyst reports, read the news, read social media faster than you and predict the way that the market's going to react with some of these items. Um, and uh, so I can front run you. So basically, because my machine never sleeps and it reads faster than you do. So there's a there's trading sort of quant behavioral type trading, which sits in that time domain. There's this sort of quarterly time domain we're talking about, but there's also a longer time domain, which is um, things that the CEO doesn't tell you in the quarter, which are still important to the growth of the company. And if I can find them out, then I can might be able willing to wait for the market to discover how well or how badly this company is doing based upon that analysis. And that's sort of a uh, longer term holders of stocks, as well as the private equity space that that uh, and the venture capital space that sort of lives out in that um, and that uh, time domain. And to some extent, the data is actually even more valuable in that time domain because um, you know, the short-term movements of the market are very behavior-driven, but the long-term um, uh, underlying value of a, of a stock is, is driven by its sort of growth. You know, much like, you know, exchange rates are, are uh, you know, they can fluctuate all over the place, you know, on a daily basis, but long-term, they're driven by the GDP growth of the individual uh, countries. So, so the longer term you go, the more that um, all of the other sort of uh, 
um, uh, uh, changes uh, sort of average out and you end up in a trajectory which is driven by the underlying health of the business. So, so data actually, um, in my view, is most beneficial in sort of the longer, longer term processes. But so that suggests to me, perhaps, that you're moving away from the kind of consumer transactions, what's happened in the last three months, and perhaps looking more under the hood at the company itself and looking, you know, what the hiring and firing is looking like and, and you know, some more structural changes to try and predict what next year is going to be like. Is that, does that suggest that we're, we're, there's a sh- there'll be a, there, we're looking at a shift in focus of data sets away from the transactions and to more towards other things? Yeah, so I think that um, the again the early work um, uh, was sort of looking over time at things like predicting um, revenue, uh, which is still a small number of data points. But I think the real advantage of data is looking at a moment in time, spatially instead of temporally, and because you have lots of granular information, and every day consumers, whether that's B two B or B two C, are making decisions about where to spend their money, and um, and so data will allow you to know who is the closest competitor, how big is your moat, how much protection do you have against your closest competitor, and um, uh, who's gaining share in what cohorts and who's losing share and why, and will it continue? Um, and so, so I think that um, uh, really where the data is going to shine the most is in um, looking at these uh, detailed competitive dynamics. So, I, I mean, I can explain that a little more clearly by, by going back 12 years or so. Um, and um, 12, you know, 12 to 15 years ago, if you had uh, brought in uh, McKinsey or something into your C-suite, um, they would tell you that you would, could improve your business by standing up a CEO dashboard. And a CEO dashboard would take your internal structured data and show you the health of your business today. You know, which, where's your inventory? Which of your pieces of your business is doing well? You know, essentially, a, a now cast a picture of the current state of your of your uh, health of your business. Now, using alternative data, you can now cast the CEO dashboard of your competitor or of a business you might want to invest in. So, essentially, you're reconstructing what they would see if they had that dashboard in their own business. And uh, so, corporates and everyone will want to have access to this type of information so they can understand how they sit. So they see uh, their own customers. Um, some fraction of the time, but they have no idea what happens to their customers when they're not there. Um, so what kind of data sets are we talking about which can do this? We've got the same data sets. Uh, there, are, there are data sets to ha- that tell you about supply chain. There are, uh, there are um, I mean, the uh, job listings data is enormously valuable and it's very uh, underutilized. A simple example of that is when you hire someone, you, you, you indicate what type of experience they want in terms of like B2B products. You know, I want someone who's familiar with AWS or with Azure or with, uh, you know, the uh, Google Cloud. And so you can see the adoption of different um, uh, tools in these competitions by uh, what people look for in a job listing. But not only that, when, when companies are hiring, they're also talking about how much restructuring they're doing. And so if you tear a house down and completely build it from scratch, you know, there's a set of workers you need in order to build different layers of the house. If you're just doing a little bit of light remodeling, maybe it's just a painter. And so it's similarly with growing a business. Um, you can see by the by sort of waves of, um, of job listings of exactly how much of a rebuild of the, of the business is, is occurring. Um, uh, and so there's a, there's a ton of information in job listings. Um, you know, obviously transportation, shipping, 
Um, and uh, lots of, again, clickstream, both uh, B2C and B2B um, uh, spend. Um, you know, there are enormous numbers of areas. Um, and one of the interesting things is that there's, you know, that people uh, often, there's a lot of creative process in this because people might look for data which has, which comes from, let's say, X, and really what benefits them is something else, which is a, uh, uh, which is an, an equal proxy. So I'll give you a real example. So I was talking to an investor um, who was investing in a company that um, uh, that provides um, uh, care to uh, sick children 24-7, nursing care, uh, for a particular set of conditions. Uh, and this business was in one state, and they were thinking of moving into other states. And um, uh, they wanted to figure out which place to move to, which states, because it, it, it de-risks their business a little bit by being in more than one state, because a lot of the funds are state funds. Um, and so they're looking at thinking about looking at insurance claims to try to find people who have the condition, but job listings are better because those jobs churn a lot. And it says a lot in the job listing about, um, uh, about what kind of skills and expertise they're looking for in a nurse. And, um, and, and you can see who the competitors are, um, and who else is advertising for similar types of nurses by state. And it's a, it's a simpler proxy. It wasn't what it was being asked for, but it's a simpler way of solving the problem. So the data science job is really. Uh, more and more about understanding the business use case uh, and then thinking about the best way to get at that problem because often it's not the way that's being asked. Okay. Um, let's let's keep going then. We, 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 you were at point 72 last time we left you and your next, your next uh, full-time role was at GIC. What, how did that come about? What was that? Yeah, so, um, uh, so when I left uh, point 72, I had a, a long... Uh, um, non-compete um, and uh, they were, um, uh, let's say, fairly firm about uh, who they considered competition and there were, were sort of uh, software companies that were actually in the finance space um, uh, that they considered competition, which I thought was uh, a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit extreme. Uh, but when uh, GIC, which is Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, uh, asked me if I could uh, uh, start working there, I told them I had a non-compete and but that they could ask uh, 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 point 0.72, but that point 0.72 would probably say no. And of course, uh, point 0.72 said yes, uh, because, um, you know, GIC is a little bit further up the food chain. I'm um, there an allocator. Um, and uh, so I was able to... GIC is a nice place to have on your side on the whole. Yes. In general. <laughs> yeah. So I was able to actually start, um, start work there um, uh, during my non-compete. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the... One of the uh, one of the things I think that uh, was helpful in terms of like uh, thinking about this, I tried talked about it in my interview. There was, you know, I'd done some research on on uh, Singapore, and I told them, well, look, I know that twelve percent of all shipping containers go through the port of uh, Singapore, um, and um, and I know that the government of Singapore is fairly nervous and cautious, and so I bet they know what's inside every container. Well, GIC stands for the Government of Singapore Investment Corp. So I asked them how they're using that data in their investing process. Um, which they weren't. Um, you know, I used to work mm -hmm. for uh, Intel, as I mentioned, um, and Intel does almost all of its assembly and test in Malaysia. So the Intel parts were literally going by under the window, um, and uh, perhaps they're reading a sell-side report from Goldman Sachs on the health of Intel when um, they actually know more about the health of Intel than, than everyone else does by just counting the parts that are going by. Interesting. 
yeah, lovely using the using that unused data to um, to extract proprietary information. Where is the um, where is the sovereign wealth world at the moment with alternative data? Did you did you get the feeling that GIC was just one like you know the, there's obviously um, NBIM in Norway and and various others presume and um, Abu Dhabi I think I've yeah I think I think uh, the uh, Adai you know the Abu Dhabi Investment um, Association I think they're actually making a a, a big uh, investment at the moment I know that mm. uh, the uh, uh, Canadian CPPIB is actually um, making a big investment I don't know uh, what's if Norway is is doing anything but I think that they are. All getting more involved in data. I mean, I you know when I went to um, uh, Newburger after GIC, um, one of the things I heard a lot was that uh, people were seeing the stocks move and they had no idea what was causing the stocks to move, and so there was a concern that other people um, knew things about um, those companies that they didn't know, and that was sort of a driver in, in trying to make sure that they they had information about uh, about the health of those companies that, from data. So I think that, I mean, obviously the sovereign wealth funds have um, a, a very large assets under management. And so, so I think it, uh, it's, it's certainly becoming more and more critical that they all have uh, some form of a data process to, uh, to understand what other investors can see. Did you feel like it was a good place to be doing alternative data? Is it, is it a, um, uh, you mentioned some of the fa- the wonderful insights that can be that can be kind of got from governmental data if it can be got hold of. Um, do you feel like there's a big future for for sovereign wealth funds and alternative data? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think that sovereign wealth funds are. Um, I mean, GIC has a reputation for being um, sort of actively engaged and trying to stay uh, uh, up with uh, um, the uh, the state of the art in the investing process. But um, at least they do that from an informational point of view. I think from an action point of view, they're relatively conservative. Um, so in the end, I, I left a, a GIC just because I thought that um, the wave um, hitting the world to change to data would uh, would occur other places first, and I wanted to participate in it more. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so then we um, then we are at Newburger Berman. Um, which is a big investment fund. Can you describe Newberger Berman a little, a little bit, please? Yeah, so Newberger Berman, I mean, so Newberger, um, it's a, uh, uh, about 300 billion uh, assets under management. Um, the firm has been around uh, since the uh, uh, 30s. Um, and uh, actually, it was, it's an employee-owned firm, and uh, it was one of the first movers in uh, uh, social responsible investing. Um, it was a wealth management business. It was incorporated into Lehman Brothers. And when Lehman collapsed, uh, 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 some of the uh, Lehman and uh, uh, prior uh, Newberger Berman folks uh, spun it off and, uh, um, and uh, set the business up again. Um, and so it has a great culture because of this uh, employee-owned nature. And also, um, it was a great uh, 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 place to be because essentially I sat with the research analysts and so it was the first place um, out of the three, um, which allowed me to talk to the sell side, uh, to talk to clients, uh, to go to the corporate access meetings, to talk to the research analysts who were actually writing internal reports and studying these uh, companies. And so um, a large problem with uh, data being used in investing places um, is that um, uh, it's too much done in vacuum and not, and it's really, it's getting in the brains of the way that research analysts think about stocks, which is the most important um, uh, for uh, for doing this effectively, again, lots of uh, folks who are doing data science and investment firms, they're, uh, they're, it's just a ticket based process where 
um, an investor says, get me this. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I semi-jokingly just describe the situation as hire a data scientist right out of college, tell him to go scrape the web, get me the magic number, and then I'll manually type it in my spreadsheet. Yeah. And so it's uh, very much in their uh, comfort zone and trying to leverage data on a task by task basis. And it's never going to be, that process is never going to be competitive. And so you have to fully integrate um, in order to to really advance the advance the field, um, and Newberger was a good place to do that. I mean, so Newberger, so just to just to track back a little bit, so you you were at point seventy two, which is a which is a hedge fund, and then you're working for a sovereign sovereign wealth fund, and then and then we're now in May twenty seventeen. You're working for a kind of a more traditional asset management investment manager. But it's, it's less uh, less uh, frantic in the pace, but more opportunity to sort of do the science necessary to figure out the best ways to contribute. I actually describe the sequence as uh, too hot, too cold in Goldilocks. <laughs> did you, did you feel Newberger Berman is, was ahead of its peers in this, in this space to be getting involved in alternative data in 2017? No, I thought, I think Newberger Berman was absolutely starting from zero. Um, they had nothing. Um, they knew that there was something that they, uh, needed to do, but there was absolutely no activity, no cloud computing. Um, the technology infrastructure was relatively, uh, uh, you know, even compared to the other two uh, behind. Um, and um, uh, so it was, a, it was a tabula rasa. It was a clean slate to build something from scratch. But what about competitors? Did you feel that others were, others were further ahead? Uh, well, not in the asset management space, um, but yeah. certainly in the hedge fund space. And so... Um, um, in fact, I would say that some of the uh, the uh, naysayers when I joined Newberger were wondering why Newberger would try to compete with the hedge funds, because this was seen as something that the hedge funds did and not necessarily something the asset managers did. And so so I don't think the uh, asset management space, uh, certainly at that point in time, was pretty, the whole space was pretty far behind in terms of leveraging data. This is it. And so you had to create... You'd obviously seen the inside of a hedge fund. You knew how it worked. Did you try to create a team on the hedge fund model or did you try and create something which was more suited to a, a slightly slower pace, which is what asset management tends to be? Well, I managed to convince the data vendors to reduce their, their, their costs by you know, order of magnitude in some cases uh, by delaying the data and doing other things, creating other channels that were more appropriate for the asset management space. But in terms of like the cloud infrastructure and the team structure, they were largely the same um, as in the, the hedge fund space. Um, but, you know, the advantage of doing it the third time is I could do it very quickly. Within six months, we were processing, you know, tens of billions of transactions of unstructured information and brand new cloud infrastructure with brand new code um, and actually generating insights. Uh, just me I and an intern. Yeah. You've done this three times. What's your bare minimum, do you think, for a uh, for an alternative data team? If you are if you are just starting up, if you do want to build a data science team, what do you what do you want to start with? Well, the cost has come down a lot. I mean, the cost in the you know seven years ago was closer to you know the twenty thirty million uh, cost. You know, at a Newberger, uh, you know, recently the cost is more like a five to six million dollar cost for the team to do this. Um, and now I think, um, in fact, in the new business I'm building. You know, I think that you can actually uh, find a way to provide this for more like a quarter of a million to half a million to individual um, uh, investors. And so that's really so the cost of doing this has come down a lot. The, the 
problem is there's a scarcity of a skill set and there's still lots of people who spend a lot of money and don't accomplish anything in the space. What's the majority of that cost going on? Well, I mean, the thing is, it's all it's always uh, people, data and compute. Um, the compute costs have come down enormously, uh, particularly if you know the ways to actually do that compute effectively. Um, the and the people costs and the data costs can be partitioned. So, for example, let's say there's a data vendor that provides information on you know, an enormously large number of companies, and all you care about is 10 companies. And so uh, you can, uh, in many cases, convince the data vendor to sell a slice of the data, um, you know, for a percentage, which is still, you know, on a per company basis, much higher than we're getting for the whole data set, but to create a whole new channel for, for their product. And so, so you, you need to sort of reduce the cost of the data by taking slices of it. Um, and um, you need to reduce the cost of the staffing by building reusable, you know, plug and play Lego type code, uh, which actually does these tasks. Um, and you need to know exactly what has to be done. And so that you don't waste lots of money on the wrong data and the wrong staff. Interesting. So you were, so you were at Newburger from 2017 to this year to, to yeah, last so month? Four years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where, how do you see the asset management space in general having progressed? Do you see Newburger as has everyone else caught up? Is 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 alternative data something which asset management do you see embracing across a wide spectrum? Where will it be in two or three years' time? Well, I mean, uh, actually, I'm relatively pessimistic uh, about asset management in general. You know, in that sort of space, because I think the um, the flow to passive um, and uh, um, it has actually been substantial and um and uh there you know there's a lot of uh people who don't necessarily want to change their process at all um and and so i think that the asset management space i mean also the fees are being compressed enormously you know companies moving out of new york to tennessee you know you have people you know businesses are closing and consolidating so i think the asset management space is under an enormous amount of pressure um uh and so so, you know, I'm not sure if the asset management space will change uh, properly to using alternative data or whether, um, you know, there'll just be something that replaces it that actually will do that. Do you see any potential for alternative data in passive investing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, if you think about, um, you know, you think about, uh, you know, robo-advisor type process, Betterment, Wealthfront, these types of businesses. I mean, right now, all they're doing is selecting, you know, essentially indices for you. But a lot of, uh, you know, at least at some level, some of these uh, analysis methods that are being done by fundamentals folks can be combined with using some machine learning and data and put into these processes. So you end up with a robo type process, which is doing uh, building portfolios and doing investing for individuals. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that will be a thing. Okay. But not enough to, to Im improve your mood about asset management and alternative. No, I, I don't include them. I'm talking about the, um, you know, the people, I, I, when I'm talking about the pessimism, I'm talking about the pessimism towards these, you know, paying uh, a money manager uh, to, to manage a, and you know, investing in a mutual fund uh, to, mm -hmm. and, and paying someone who manages that for you. Uh, you know, obviously there's one of the big growth areas in that space is thematic um, uh, type of investing. Um, I mean, uh, last year, you know, uh, Arc, uh, Kathy Woods uh, shop did phenomenally well with the Tesla bets and some of the other bets and not doing as well this year. But, you know, the um, so I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm in thematic and, and impact uh, type uh, investing, you know, ESG type investing. So so, you know, there will be, you know, I think there obviously will still be, still be lots of money in that space where people are picking stocks. Um, uh, but um, 
but the question about how much data is going to be used was really the question. Um, and, uh, and, and, and will they actually, you know, you know, have the engineering money and other wherewithal to actually go and put data into the process. I think ultimately, whoever survives will be doing it in 10 or 20 years. Let's bring us up to date then. This month or last month, you created a new venture, which is Alpha Rock, spelled R-O-C. Why, why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so the idea is that um, um, in this space, there's still a lot of friction or disconnect between uh, people who want to sell data and people who want to buy data. Um, the people who want to sell data um, uh, you know, aren't having the level, level of success that they would hope to in terms of engaging uh, customers, and partially because they don't really know how the data will be used and what, you know, and the details of the use cases. And so um, there's one side of the business where, where I'm working with uh, uh, data vendors to, uh, you know, analyze their data, build, uh, uh, you know, marketing type material or, um, or potentially build add-ons to their product or subsets of their product, which are new channels for for selling their data um, and to help them in the uh, their go-to-market process. On the other side, there are investors who, um, you know, there are 5,000 uh, um, investment shops with uh, uh, over a billion uh, assets in man under management in, in the U.S., including family offices. And, you know, some of these folks uh, have never even tried to use data, but they're looking at vendors and various other things, and they're trying to get engaged. And I think there's opportunities for helping them to uh, set up processes to uh, to leverage data. Um, again, I think the if you look at um, and the 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 the, the best uh, and and uh, and early adapters in that space will be people who are concentrated in their portfolio and to hold stocks for a longer period of time. And the stage in their investing process where the data will be most useful is in um, uh, monitoring um, their their current positions. So once they bought the stock, they have. They have it sitting in their portfolio. The question is, is their thesis, the reason why they bought the stock, still true? So you can use data to sort of, you know, build instrumentation, combine all of their ideas about why they like the stock, you know, in, in these uh, pieces, you know, might be maybe the, 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 the customer base is going to grow or the lifetime value of the customer is going to grow or they're going to expand or, or there are a bunch of different aspects to the thesis. And you can build monitoring tools uh, which actually look at that and which just roll up into a light. So imagine there's a light in your desk. Um, if the light is green, um, your thesis is still true. If the stock goes down, it's a great day. You know, you can buy more stock um, because your thesis is still true. The company is still going the right direction. If the light is yellow um, and the stock goes down, maybe you hold the edge of the desk for the day. <laughs> um, if the light is red, then hopefully you sold it before um, before it went down. Um, and and if and the idea would be that you would click on this light and see what the underlying data were and the weightings that have been assigned um, through. Uh, the discretionary investors process on those weightings so that um, uh, which could be adjusted and other data sources is, can be brought in. And, but that's, that's really the, I think the, the most straightforward way of describing how um, this type of uh, uh, product would actually help uh, uh, investing team. So the, um, so as we've talked about, you have a great deal of experience in a, in a very fledgling world um, of, of creating successful teams for alternative uh, to, to be able to manage and, and extract value from alternative data. Um, am I right? in so Alpha Rock, have I understood it, is there as a kind of consulting business to advise on how that process happens? Is, is it is a consulting business? Is there a tech, tech, technological part to it as well? 
Yeah, so it's, um, uh, you know, all businesses start as a service. Certainly in uh, the financial world, um, uh, people are buying reputation. Um, and so, um, but I think that they all transition to be a product. And so the idea is um, to help people understand what they can do, to actually do some pilot work, to show them what can be done, and then to sell them a product, uh, which let's say provides the monitoring like I was just describing. Or if it's, if it's a data vendor, you're actually creating a new product, which you're, uh, you know, cross-selling to their existing clients or selling in, in, in replacement for their other products to existing clients. And it's a, you know, rev share type arrangement uh, with the data vendor with, with this new wrapping of their product that's being sold. So in both cases, whether it's the data, data vendors or whether it's the investors, it starts as a service uh, and it transitions into a product. Got it. Have you got an ideal client in mind? Is there someone you'd really hope is listening to this podcast right now and would get in touch with you? You know, I actually have a, you know, always happy to talk to more people, but I have a very large amount of uh, incoming already. And so, um, um, you know, the, the biggest challenge at the moment is um, uh, is hiring. Um, and so I've been uh, doing lots of uh, interviewing. Um, uh, also, you know, want to thank uh, Amazon for providing me, uh, you know, what I would consider almost infinite at the moment, compute for free. Um, and I have lots of data vendors who are letting me put uh, their data in, in my uh, cloud infrastructure. Um, and so we're standing up lots of data. So and uh, um, so, um, uh, you know, always happy to talk to new folks about this. But um, we, we, you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of incoming at the moment. Do you um, and are you hiring specifically on a on a side on the kind of a, are you looking for coders? Yeah, so I think that the people who are going to be golden, the people who are going to be golden in the future are people who actually understand fundamentals, and um, and also can can code um, and can do math, um, and particularly uh, use uh, cloud infrastructure. So, and the the problem is that universities don't teach this, and so you end up either with people who uh, started in sort of a math uh, science uh, computing uh, background and who are just fascinated in the investing worlds who actually learn the other on the side. Or you have people who actually um, are sort of been investing forever and have been building modern tools and, you know, in order to be able to uh, to solve the problems. But but there are actually relatively few um, uh, people who actually have this combination of uh, um, of having, you know, the computing background and also uh, computing and math background and also having the uh, an understanding of the way investing works. And so. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the trick is to find people who have a sufficient combination and that can be trained to, 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 uh, 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 the further steps that are necessary. But, um, but yeah, that's, um, that's, that's what I'm essentially looking for. And, you know, obviously there's lots of other stuff to do uh, as well. Um, uh, when you build a company, it's not just one type of person, but, um, but you know, the, the hardest type of person to find is the one I just described. Brilliant. Okay, Michael. Well, I think we've covered an awful lot of ground, um, and it's been fascinating to to see all the all the different experiences you've had. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much for for coming to join today, and and best of luck with the new venture. Thanks a lot, Mark. It's been great talking to you.